Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to new books in science, technology, and society. The history of computing is often narrated as a march of great men and their great machines. We might think of the von Neumann architecture the IBM System 360, or Moore's Law. The business-oriented history of personal computing is no different. A popular narrative of innovator auteurs like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs forms a crucial part of our cultural memory in an age when personal computing devices are all too ubiquitous. In A People's History of Computing in the United States, published in 2018 by Harvard University Press, independent scholar Joy Lisi Rankin sets out to correct that narrative. By telling the stories of three major early mass computing initiatives in the 60s and 70s, all taking place in education rather than in the electronic data processing that became central to business at the same time, Rankin shows how early computing efforts had a moral and political economy based in ideals of inclusion, a kind of citizenship even, in which computers were imagined as a public good. Discussing early computing in terms of citizenship allows Rankin to move beyond narrow sociological conceptions of computer users and to tie the history of computing to the broader social and political upheavals of the era, namely civil rights and women's liberation. Paying attention to gender and race in the history of early computing allows Rankin to show how the consumer-driven masculine computer culture that solidified in the 1980s was far from inevitable, and she encourages us to imagine a different future for computing through this overlooked past. With a background in software herself, Rankin is perhaps the ideal person to write this kind of history. Yes, and this absolutely came from my personal and professional experience before I started my doctorate. So I had worked for almost a decade um, between my undergrad and then starting a PhD. And during that time, I worked launching programs that often involve were at the intersection of education and technology. So for instance, um, right around 2000, I was working for a dot-com company that did English as a second language online. We had proprietary voice over internet technology um, well before Skype or anything like that. It's sort of hard. I think it's hard to remember now how quickly things changed, but at the time, it was this amazing um, way for people all around the world. We had teachers and students all around the world to learn English and practice their English, this kind of thing. And that was my first experience watching people 
use technology um, in ways we expected them to use it one way. And then they would take it and do something creative and unexpected and really run with it. So it very clear, quickly became clear and sometimes frustrating um, and sometimes hilarious that we would intend them to use, say, a chat room one way and they would do five other things with it. Um, but it, it's sort of got me thinking then and in subsequent projects and work experiences as well about how, how we think about users uh, and technology. And now we think of users mostly as end users. But my experience throughout that decade of time was that people were often students, educators, whomever they were, were often doing far more interesting and unexpected things and sort of making the technology their own. Moreover, Rankin's academic background proved to be consequential for conceptualizing a new way to tell the history of computing as a kind of social history. And I guess I should say the other way that I came into the history of computing in particular is that as an undergraduate, I double majored in history and math, which many people thought was a weird combination. And I thought, no, this is great. I can think about the history of math and science and I can, you know, sort of do my math stuff that was very satisfying. And I taught myself to program as well during that time. So when I finally felt like it was time for me to uh, go for a PhD, the history of science and technology was a really natural fit. And when I had to start, when I was doing my qualifying fields and thinking about uh, dissertation topics, one of my fields was history of computing very broadly. And I really was coming back to this idea of sort of I should say in my in the course of reading for that field, reading widely in the history of technology and computing a lot of the narratives um, at that time, and this has certainly changed within the past five to 10 years, but a lot of the history is really focused on, I say, men and machines. Um, men being people like anyone from Charles Babbage to Steve Jobs uh, to Bill Gates, but machines, the, the ENIAC or IBM or whatever it might be. And I thought, wait, there's, you know, in my experience, we're, we're missing something. Like we're missing a lot of people. There are a lot of people using technology. Uh, and so that's really what started me on the path to this book. And for me, um, I did my undergrad at Dartmouth College. I knew there was a history of um computing there that was quite rich. And so that was sort of pointed me in the direction of saying, if I want to rethink um, a sort of a, a ground up, a social history of computing, maybe this is a place to start. And as the book shows, it was a good place to start. Um, and it led me to Minnesota and Plato as well. How has the history of computing been told by others? I asked Rankin to unpack a little bit of how historians have thought about the rise of modern computing. So I would say as an academic field, the history of computing w was interesting, particularly because it got its start really by actors in the field. 
So let's say in the late 70s and, and early 80s, perhaps even before that, people who had been part of um, computing efforts during World War II and then sort of the development of mainframe computers in the 50s and programming languages, um, the people who actually had done all of that started writing their own histories and memoirs. Um, and that's laid the groundwork for sort of a participant historian approach to the field. And then professional historians started coming in and really, again, focusing on World War II as sort of the birth of the modern digital computer and the growth thereafter. Uh, and that those professional narratives, those sort of the academic literature is very focused on computing as a military endeavor, computing as a product of war, um, and especially then it became computing as something that was um, closely intertwined with the Cold War. And Paul Edwards has this book called A Closed World that really argues that computing, because it was uh, so closely developed with the Cold War is about containment and sort of a way of thinking that's isolating and um, has to do with global geopolitics. Um, so that sort of one series of interpretation followed after that professional historians are saying, no, no, wait a second. Um, it's more about the countercultural, counterculture, excuse me, and sort of ideas of pushing back against the Cold War. So Fred Turner's book, um, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, is sort of the touchstone here. And there are others, um, like what the Dormouse said, um, that say, no, we really need to look at what's happening in um, with the hippies and sort of the the pushback against the military industrial complex. And that's where these ideas as computing as liberation come from. Um, so this, this history is relatively recent and literally in the times that I'm talking about where participants are writing their own histories and then there's a shift to thinking about the sort of military industrial complex and then a shift to the counterculture. Like this is all, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And even during that time, there's a geographic shift in computing in the United States um, from really being heavily focused on IBM and even the Northeast, MIT, University of Pennsylvania is sort of home for the ENIAC in a lot of ways, um, a shift westward to our thinking about Silicon Valley as the site of high technology. Um, and at the same time that that shift is happening, companies like Apple and Microsoft, um, not so much in the 80s, but I would say in the 90s, are becoming part of the national discourse. And so we start thinking of people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates as national heroes. And there's a bunch of popular uh, journalistic literature at that time that's really sort of building up. Silicon Valley, both as a, as a place and as a concept of like, this is what technology in the United States is about. Befitting of her background, the book begins at Dartmouth, where a different kind of computing than that that developed at institutions like MIT was taking form, a form more suited to a liberal arts education. Yeah, so Dartmouth is um, 
a small liberal arts college. Uh, it's a member of the Ivy League. It's in very remote, rural New Hampshire. And in the 1960s, it's still um, all male as an undergraduate institution. And what happens at sort of the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s is um, the math department ages out. Basically, like there are a number of people retiring in the math department and a number of new professors are coming in. And two of them are John Kemeny and Tom Kurtz. Um, they're both mathematicians who were trained at Princeton, um, but they're enthusiastic about computing. And they have personal experience with it. Um, Kemeny had actually worked at Los Alamos during World War II and had exposure to computing there. Part of sort of building a new math department, they wanted to attract students to the department as well. And they thought computing was one way to do that. So they actually got a small computer to start. Um, and saw what the students could do with it. Basically, if you gave students exposure, hands-on exposure to a computer, they would write programs, they would be creative, um, they would do amazing work. And they basically, over a course of a few years, said, we need to, we need to pitch this to the college, to the trustees, so that all of our students, all of our undergraduates have access to computing. And the way they do that is by creating um, what was called a time-sharing system, which meant that, um, and I'm simplifying here, but that there were terminals that looked like typewriters with printers attached. So you could imagine typing in and you would see what you were typing sort of printed out on the printer. And then the teletypes were connected to computers and the computer would communicate back through the printer, like by printing results to a program or printing out the latest news from uh, a newsletter, this kind of thing, so that it was a text-based interface. But on campus, there were tens and eventually hundreds of these terminals connected to one computer and Dartmouth, um, mandated that all of their first-year math students learn how to write programs. In the late 1960s, political movements throughout the country were beginning to shape life at Dartmouth. As access to education expanded and Dartmouth began to enroll women and African Americans for the first time, Kemeny aimed to expand computing in turn, though some of the old culture of an elite male college endured. Kemeny, who I should say, Kemeny, who was one of the leaders in the push to broaden computing access at Dartmouth, later became president and also was very active in transforming the college to recruit more people of color, more African-Americans, more Native Americans. And he was also the person who led the college to become co-educational. And this is all happening during the later 60s and 1970s. Um, but, and when Dartmouth is sort of creating its computing network, they're also trying to reach out to colleges and high schools around New England to give computing uh, access to women at the all women's colleges around New England and some other co-ed colleges as well as co-ed high schools. 
But the idea of that, it, I mean, in some ways it's absolutely great because all of these students and educators are having access to computing to create their own programs, to be creative and explore. But the reality of it is that the users and programmers themselves are operating in a culture that is very much about Cold War heteronormative gender roles and the idea that um, men are going to go off and work and be professionals and women are, are going to um, be married and stay at home. And the computing culture is enmeshed with that larger social structure. And so we see things happening like um, men of Dartmouth are saying like, I'm going to bring my date to the computing center to show her how great I am at computing. Um, even though she might also have been computing at her college as well. But sort of these ideas around courtship, um, another example is like football is, is huge at Dartmouth and huge in the Ivy League during this decade. But Dartmouth also creates like three different versions of football to be played on the network and played sort of socially um, as a point of camaraderie and social interaction. In fact, a program called Football was arguably the most important one on campus. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Like, oh, you have to wake up and, and like go to campus to make sure that this program is working. Um, yes. A major contribution of the book is to talk about computer users using the language of citizenship. And I asked Rankin to unpack this. Right. So my definition of citizenship is, is contingent on participation in a computing community and access to that computing community. Um, so what I noticed as I was researching and then writing and revising this book is it felt like coming up against a wall of sort of, of language of saying, well, you know, users are users and they're sort of passive recipients. And I thought about calling them um, authors because they're writing programs or producers, uh, creators, makers. And none of those felt right because what also I realized as I was thinking through all of this is that in each of these cases, it's a, it's a very social process and computing is something that doesn't happen. It does happen individually, but it really happens within a larger social structure, whether it's a college or a group of high schools. Um, and so citizenship is this at its most ideal computing citizenship is saying that individuals will have access to computing and computing on a network um, by virtue of being part of a community. For me, sort of Minnesota is the at its best, the best realization of that vision because Minnesota creates a statewide um, network based at public schools for kindergartners through postgraduates. Hold on now, Minnesota? That's different, you might be thinking. However, as Rankin discusses, 
Minnesota was the high-tech hub of computing in the 1970s, which made the vision of a state computing service, the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, or MEC, seem all the more legitimate. Oof, MEC came, that's a long question. MEC came together. Um, I would say the most straightforward answer I can give is that there was a really um, grassroots push for computing in Minnesota. And it's, it's important to remember here, and it, I think it's largely forgotten now, that Minnesota really was the Silicon Valley of the United States during the 1960s and 1970s. Um, I think part of, and what I mean by that is like, this is where uh, Univac was and Honeywell and IBM Rochester and Control Data Corporation. And these were huge high-tech computing companies, um, the leaders in the United States at this time. And they're all in the sort of in and around the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I think it's largely forgotten that this was a high-tech hub for the United States because at the time, those companies were selling computers not to individual consumers, but rather to the government and to other businesses. So it wasn't as sort of publicly obvious in a way that Apple or Microsoft or now Facebook or Instagram sort of became where individuals had this one-on-one -on -one interaction. At the time, Minnesota had this high-tech um, hub based on selling computers to for the Cold War for a variety of military um, and corporate purposes. But still, there are all these people working in this industry um, and in supporting industries, seeing how important it is. And then sort of really starting from one school and a few university high school, which is the lab high school at the University of Minnesota. There are some teachers who are young and enthusiastic about computing and they say, let's get a computer in our classroom, basically. Like, let's put a teletypewriter in who, how can we connect it? Oh, we can connect it to Dartmouth's network. Um, and those few teachers spread the word as do their students to other teachers in the Twin Cities area. Um, and the parents are on board because they're working in this high-tech hub. And so they create something called TIES, which is Total Information for Educational Systems, which is like a cooperative of initially about 20 school districts that pool their resources specifically for the purpose of bringing computing to their students and educators and administrators. Um, and this happens in the late 60s. TIES grows rapidly. And then while TIES is growing, so TIES is the example that I go into in depth in my book, but there are other similar computing networks that are turning up across Minnesota. It sort of gets to the level of the state where, the, where state leaders are saying, well, we, we should have a statewide network. And explicitly with an idea of citizenship in mind, they want to ensure that students who are not in the Twin Cities area, who are in, they call it outstate Minnesota, in the more rural parts, have access to what they see is such an important 
part of their current economy, but they also see sort of it's becoming part of the national economy um, and the national sort of cultural and political scene as well. So they explicitly go about um, the idea of creating a network to say, we have to have our students across the state have access to this. And putting it in schools is the best way to guarantee that our future citizens will have this kind of exposure. Earlier in the podcast, Rankin brought up how in her first career, she was always surprised by the way users managed to find their own ways of doing things. I asked her about the tension between pedagogy and entertainment in early computing, a theme that unites all the major cases in her book. Computing was then very closely associated with mathematics um, in the sense that creating a program then was very algorithmical. You had to sort of create a series of steps to solve a problem. And usually that was taught in the context of mathematics. So teachers were often um, interested in saying like, let's learn, sort of learn how to use the computer for the purposes of learning programming um, and learning how to use a computer, but also like as a way to learn math or um, explore math problems. And the students, meanwhile, were saying things like, okay, but also we're going to write programs to play roulette and basketball and bowling or write poetry or make art. Um, But sort of what's really interesting is there was a philosophy of students should be able to teach computers versus computers should be able to teach students. And it's something that actually you can is is sort of under sort of interwoven throughout the book is the idea that at Dartmouth and Minnesota um, the idea that students can teach the computer sort of takes the form of saying students should learn basic the programming language and be as creative as possible and yeah maybe they're going to solve math problems for their math courses but maybe they're also going to learn how to lay out their school newspaper. Um, And so there's maybe less tension between the idea of what an educator wants the student to do versus what the students might want to do, because there's an idea that in that way, the best education is the student sort of figuring out how to do what they want to do, sort of using the computer as a tool. Plato, by contrast, is really starts as the idea of the computer will teach the student, meaning um, sort of Plato lessons are this idea of computer-assisted instruction, or a teacher or a university instructor will sort of program a set of materials that will be displayed to a student using the Plato system. And that's how the student will learn. So how do you learn how to treat heart attack victims? Oh, you do this Play-Doh course that's for nurses. Um, There it's really about the computer delivering content and the computer providing education. And in some ways the student being more of a passive consumer. And so I think these were also, um, these were by far the debates that were raging in the like educational computing 
world during the 60s and 70s and through today. I mean, we hear them in different ways now, but there is still a lot of conversation about like, what should we have iPads in the classroom for or whatever the case may be. Um, so sort of what role does technology play? And I think Plato in particular, there was often tension because while the, uh, the network became large and it was incredible because they had flat panel plasma screens. So they also had amazing video displays and had games galore. Those games were often seen as um, counter to the purpose of the computer teaching the student. Whereas sort of on the Dartmouth and Minnesota networks, games were seen as like, oh, cool, a uh, computer has figured, or excuse me, a student has figured out how to teach the computer um, and they're doing something creative with it. Historians often work from manuscript sources that seemed important enough for someone at the time to hold on to. What does one do with a glut of primary source material from an early computer social network? I asked Rankin to unpack some of her archival methods a bit more, specifically for the Plato project, begun at the University of Illinois. I was thinking about that like literally this morning because I was, um, a colleague and I, Amy Johnson, who she's a linguistic anthropologist um, and I'm a historian and we're working on an essay about BASIC as a programming language, but from an anthropological and linguistic perspective as well as a historical perspective. And I was just thinking about the fact that there was a huge effort to standardize BASIC as a language in the early 1970s. And I have, I don't know, thousands of pages of archival material about this effort to standardize BASIC. That clearly is not at all in the book. It's not, I don't think I even mentioned it. Um, and Similarly, there were, you know, it's an amazing um, archival resource that Plato has these like four years of notes files, which are basically like chat rooms that have been, were printed out and preserved and now digitized and sort of accessible online. Um, how do you decide what, what to do with four years of stuff? What ends up in, the, and I think, I think my through line through the book, the way that I navigated all of those archives and all of the newsletters and everything else was saying, what are the stories that most illustrate and bring to life how passionate people were about their computing networks and their computing citizenship? And passion takes all forms. like. Um, you know, in the case of Plato, like people, there is harassment happening. There is also, um, you know, there are debates about like the mail truck on screen. Um, but so thinking about what seemed most human in writing about technology. And that's, I mean, for me, it was really the stories that that resonated with me and, and my experience sort of having seen and worked with students and educators in other contexts that helped me say like, 
Yeah. As an academic and as a historian who understands that there's like a whole body of literature about standardization as a social practice and a social construct, like, yeah, there's like a great article to be written someday, maybe by someone else, about like trying to standardize BASIC. Finally, I asked Rankin to discuss more how this alternative history of computing citizenship explains something about the consumer-driven computing that crystallized in the 1980s. This is really my nod to, to the present and to saying that like, yeah, computing now is ubiquitous. I mean, we don't even call it computing anymore. We have smartphones and devices and we, you know, tweet and use Facebook and Instagram and we're doing this podcast digitally and we don't even think about it. But in many cases, those interactions are happening under corporate governance. And it's something we, I think people aren't sort of thinking explicitly about, like Facebook uses the rhetoric of community all the time, but Facebook is out to make money. They're a business and we are consumers. We've also become products as well as consumers. Our data, our information, sort of we see this more and more by the day. It's, it's something that is, is bought and sold. And that is not an interaction about community. And it's not an interaction about citizenship or even a notion of the public good. And so for me, when I wrote about this transition to becoming consumers, becoming people who buy Apple computers and who buy software and who have to pay for network access. And again, like if you contrast Minnesota in the 70s when they're trying to get all students access as a public good to like today, the fact that like something like 30% of people of color in the United States don't have broadband broadband access at home. Like it's not, it's, it's an issue of social justice. It's an issue of citizenship in terms of the fact that digital access isn't, isn't a nicety, it's a necessity, but it's still something where the burden is on individuals as consumers rather than sort of the government saying, we're going to provide some kind of access as a public good. Um, so it's my sort of, it's my lament a little bit, but also to say like, well, you know, sometimes we can write histories to reimagine the future or think about what we might want to change about the present in looking towards the future. And so that's what I would like to do as well. Rankin's new project seeks to go beyond computers to a history of how the notion of genius itself has been forged through gender norms and social exclusion. So part of something that I would say sort of came out of this book sideways is um, an interest in genius and gender. And so it, I would say it's not surprising if I say sort of to an academic audience like, oh, Genius has always been coded masculine. Like it's very historically something that we associate with men and not women and sort of the, the ideas of who does what and how. But I 
want to look at that more historically over sort of maybe a much longer period of time to say like, how did people talk about genius in the early modern period compared to today? And, you know, for women who we might now describe as geniuses, but who weren't then sort of what language was used and sort of what kind of work, what work is done when we talk about genius, um, especially in a scientific or technological realm and sort of what sets of values and traits are we putting there? I've also um, been reading Kate Mann's book, um, Down Girl on the logic of misogyny. And I think there's a relationship between genius and misogyny historically that I am interested in. So the, the simplest sort of backing out the simplest way to, that I think about this project is like, why on earth do people still think girls can't do math? Um, even though, <laughs> like, even though clearly that's not the case. Um, and like, I would come across it when I was talking to people about a people's history of computing. And like, there was still in the sixties, this idea of like, oh, girls, girls aren't doing math. Girls can't do math, but it's sort of persisted. Um, so yeah. Thanks so much for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.